The Energy Gang is sponsored by Renasola, a top manufacturer and supplier of clean energy equipment, including solar modules, inverters, energy storage, and efficient lighting. With 40 worldwide subsidiaries, the company offers one-stop shopping for all your equipment needs, with next-day delivery. You can see the entire list of Renasola's offerings available coast-to-coast at renasola.us. For the week of June 4th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. I am your host, Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show. Glad to have you with us. In this week's installment, how do we measure economy wide energy efficiency? We'll talk with an energy economist who's made it his mission to find out. We'll also explore the value of IT-enabled intelligent efficiency. Then we'll talk storage. The gang was at the Energy Storage Association's annual conference last week, and we've got some takeaways on where the industry is at. Finally, we'll talk about some severe troubles for clean coal. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts, as usual. Catherine's here in D.C. with me. She's a partner at 38 North Solutions. Um, Catherine, I saw you last Friday afternoon in Dallas when you were about to go catch a plane and have pizza night with your kids. I trust you were on time and the pizza was enjoyable. Absolutely awesome. We always have pizza night Friday night, so I did make it back from the flooded Dallas. Yeah, it was crazy the night before. I was worried that we weren't going to get out. Um, Jigger Shaw is in New York City. He is the president of Generate Capital. He also gave the keynote speech at ESA Storage Conference, which... One attendee called humorously horrifying, <laughs> not in a bad way, but in the uh, the way Jigger raised questions about how the industry should tout its benefits. Don't you love that phrase, Jigger? Humorously horrifying. I, I thought it was awesome. That's why I forwarded it to you. <laughs> well, we'll see if we can live up to that today. Um, our guest this week is certainly not horrifying. I cannot vouch for his humor, but he is an extremely nice and an extraordinarily intelligent guy. It is Skip Leitner. An economist with Economic and Human Dimensions Resource Associates, and he's also a senior fellow with ACEEE. Skip, welcome to the show. How are you? Well, delighted. I'm delighted to say my humor is intact, even if there are some horrifying issues to address. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Indeed. (laughs) Well, you're one of the more prolific writers on the economics of energy efficiency. You've written... Gosh, I think over 250 reports and journal articles and book chapters. And since I've been covering the energy efficiency industry over the last couple of years, well, the last four or five years, you've, you've sent along like four or five really fascinating in-depth reports. And we're going to talk about a couple of them um, and the broader issues that you address. And, and, and you've called your most recent journal piece, which looks at how to link energy efficiency with resource productivity, one of your most important. And in that piece, you look at ways to measure economy-wide energy productivity, and you say that right off the bat, America is only 14% efficient, a number that I think might surprise a lot of people. How do you come to that number? No, a, a good insight. I might say, all the way back to my early career, yeah, I've done uh, quite a few uh, pieces, as you suggest. Early on, I was talking about conservation and then solar energy way back in the 70s. And I wrote a a journal article in a German publication, believe it or not. It was translated by a colleague of mine. And that was basically right, but for the entirely wrong reason. Uh, So I say that to people listening because somehow we need to rethink how we understand energy in the larger context. And bottom line, in the 70s, I was saying 
we need efficiency uh, and even then renewable energy to save money. But today I'm rethinking saying we need efficiency to drive uh, a more robust and more resilient economy. And the reason for that is because, exactly as you pointed out, uh, our nation, when we throw all the energy at the economic process, we may pull, uh, in 2010, 14% of that energy as work, work meaning the transforma transformation of matter into the desired goods and services, and then, of course, distributing those goods and services where we need them, it might be, my preliminary numbers for today uh, might say we might be up to 15, maybe a little over 15.5% energy efficient. That means we're wasting 85% of the energy resources. And it doesn't take much of an economist or anybody to think about this. If we're wasting that much in the way we use resources, whether materials, whether water, but especially energy, you can imagine what a huge array of costs that imposes on the economy and that set of costs just clamps down and makes it harder to provide economic activity and to provide jobs that we need. So we really do need to rethink this thing called energy. Not just a nice way of saving a few dollars, but more fundamental, it's it's really key to a maintaining a sustainable and robust economy over the long term. Yeah, so t tell us how you define these terms and how you get here. So in this paper, you, you use the term exergy, which is a, a common term. It's, it's um, useful energy, the energy that runs our machines and our electronics, not the waste energy. Um, and you say that we need to stop thinking about energy as a whole, which includes both useful energy and waste energy. We can, and if, if we think about exergy, we can more appropriately understand the relationship between energy and economic pro productivity. Explain. Yeah. A good comment. Uh, yeah, and it needs some explaining to be sure. It's a, it's a bit wonky. <laughs> it is, it is. And as you say, well, actually, the idea of exergy, the high quality energy available to do the work we want, that is to say, to transform that matter into needed goods and services, um, that's the high quality energy available to do work and how effective we use it. For example, I did an estimate uh, all of the energy, the thermal energy in the Gulf of Mexico. All that thermal energy, and one way we could say it would provide the U.S. with enough energy for over 3,000 years of useful energy. But all that energy in the Gulf of Mexico is not available. It's not a high enough quality, not a high enough temperature uh, to do work. It's there. Everything uh, is driven by energy, but is it available to do work? So my colleague Robert Ayers, and I owe him a debt of gratitude, he's a mathematical physicist but also an economist, now retired and uh, out of the um, uh, NCAD, the International Business School uh, out of Paris. Uh, he's really laid some of the foundation with other people as well. We all acknowledge our, our predecessors. But what we're saying is we need to measure energy as work, not as a commodity, not as a kilowatt hour of electricity sold as a gallon of gasoline pumped out into the gas tank of our car, what have you, but as its ability to actually functionally provide for the well-being of society and to provide the ability to uh, help people have jobs and the like. When we do that, when we trace it all the way through, whether it's light, whether it's thermal energy and industrial process, whether it's powering up the internet or maintaining a cold beer in the refrigerator, what is actually going on as work to provide the cooling, to provide the heat, to provide the light? And we do it in that way, we find out that we're wasting over 80% of that energy and that's nothing but a set of costs that really clamp down on the economy. So it's in that way we, we, we're taking a look at energy. Energy as work, not energy as effort, not energy as a commodity, but the ability to really provide for the well-being of our, our social 
uh, and political economy. And just one more question for context here so that people can understand this. What might that mean in terms of GDP growth or in terms of economic productivity? Like, Do you have any numbers that you've calculated when we think about uh, exergy efficiency? Exactly. Well, in fact, yes. Um, Bob, uh, Bob Ayers and his colleague, uh, Benjamin Warr, but I've amplified this as well, looking all the way back to 1900. And we've seen then our economy was two to three percent energy efficient. And we've grown to 1950, we grew to eight percent. And now we're at about 14 percent, maybe pushing 15 percent. And if you track that information over this long historical time frame, and then look at the productivity, the per capita GDP, for example, the personal income available to the average person in our economy, it's growing weaker and weaker. We're seeing the productivity declining. Now, we'll see a spurt uh, maybe this year or next year, and everybody's going to get really happy because we're going to see a little bit of a spurt in 2015, 2016. We're going to be saying, oh, we're back on track again. But the need is to step back and look at that longer trend and see how that might look. And economists around the world, whether the International Energy Agency, one of my clients, or the OECD, or the World Bank, everybody is beginning to say the economy is getting weaker. And that means we may have a productivity instead of 2% a year with a 1% population growth that gives us 3% GDP. 2% productivity may decline to closer to 1%, 1.2%. That's not enough to provide new jobs And the reason for that weakening is because of the huge resource constraints brought about by the inefficient use of materials, water, and especially energy. So we're maybe looking, uh, my long-run projection right now, building on standard forecasts, but interpreting them a little bit differently, says by 2040, a typical year for which we look out into the future, we may be 7 to 15 million jobs short. We're going to grow the number of jobs, but slowly, but we still may not be able to provide 7 to 15 million jobs that will be necessary. And you can imagine if we got that many people looking for work, not having available income, we're going to be a fractious nation rather than a a nation uh, working together. And that's going to be even harder to do things about climate change to provide money for education or other uh, programs that we want to see happen in our economy. Uh, Skip, I was when I was hired by the National Renewable Energy Lab in 1994, my boss then, Bob Westby, said as I was developing an energy efficiency audit program for the federal government, he said there is one person you need to contact, and that is Skip Leitner. And so, as you well know, I did that. And at that time, we were just starting to say, oh, you know, meters are a good idea because data could potentially be really important. So now, as I think about what you're trying to accomplish, and, and we have so much more data now available to us, does that provide us some more tools that then are going to help us with this issue of sort of economy-wide efficiency? Well, a really good question. And if you see Bob or talk to him, say hello. Uh, he was a client of mine way back then. So yes, um, delighted. Two things in the data world. One is Yes, we now have the ability to collect data we never had before, but we're still not looking for the right data. And secondly, our national economic accounts have never really tracked the kind of data we need to understand the performance of the economy. That is to say, what is it that drives productivity? What is it that creates the ability of jobs? Yes, we track things like investment broadly. Yes, we track personal income. Yes, we track imports, exports. But we've, and we track energy, but again, energy as a commodity sold on the market, which is important. I'm not dismissing that. 
But if we really wanted to understand the vitality, the sustainability, and the robustness of our economy long term, we need to understand energy as work. So we now have the tools to begin collecting the data, but we don't have the means to organize that data in a useful time series uh, where we really are confident that it's clean data, that it matches the right information, nor do we collect the right data. So for example, um, we collect the number of people using uh, Twitter or that are on Google, or we collect the number of devices that may be linked, the number of mobile devices, but those are just numbers without any impact. Well, we can say there's you know, revenues associated with them, but we don't know how the use of those devices actually improve the performance of the economy. And there are devices that are at the margins of the economy, that is to say, the social links at the edges of what we're doing. We haven't really developed the data to really connect the core of the economic activity for an industrial plant to say, all right, we're using this amount of heat, we're processing this amount of metal, we're pulling in this number of people, and we have to invest this kind of capital. And how do these individual inputs to the economic process, the industrial activity, how can they be optimized by real-time communication, by understanding that if we use more heat here, then we offset labor here, or if we pull in more jobs in a smarter way over here, that offsets the need for electricity or materials like aluminum or metal, what have you. So the data, uh, the ability to collect the data is there, but we really haven't figured out a way to organize it and specifically to inform us how to increase the robustness, the productivity, the resilience of our economy. And that's a bit of work I think we need to really focus on over the next uh, half decade or so. So, Skip, I, I'd love to build up to maybe a slightly different argument, which is that um, it seems to me that a, a place like Germany seems a little bit more efficient than we are in the U.S., um, even though they have much higher costs of electricity and other fuels, their average electricity bills are actually lower than most of the United States, including California. And so I'm curious whether this isn't really just a a political issue. And I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, what would you say the relative efficiency is of the German economy versus the U.S. economy? No, that's a really good question and an important way to think about it. So it's not a, a different way, but it's a highly complementary way we need to realize. Yes, Germany does um, have spots, if you will, or hot areas uh, where their efficiency is greater than ours. But Germany is actually a lagging economy compared to the U.S. right now, broadly speaking. That's because they have a intense focus, say, on end-use efficiency in the homes particularly, but they still haven't integrated information and communication technology as part of their economic core. So they're focusing on a few areas and that we see the benefits, and yes, we're absolutely right to cite them as a leading example, but it's, again, at the margins, not at the core. So if you were to ask me, I would say where the U.S. might be 14%, 15%, maybe a little bit above energy efficient as I might measure it, Germany, France, European Union more broadly might be, say, 18%. And we think, well, that's much better, except that both sets of economies are wasting well over 80% of the resources. Uh, and that's what we need to focus on. And yes, there are uh, nice examples, uh, but we want to move from proof by example to really developing a core integration within the infrastructure, within the core of the economy, how to really pull this efficiency into higher levels of productivity. And to do that, we need much more robust systems of information, data, 
managing that data, understanding that data, and then applying that data to useful upgrades in the way we do uh, business, in the way we socialize, in the way we work in our economy. But I'd suggest to you that it's a little bit different than that, Skip. I mean, I understand your sort of methodology of, of conversation, which I think is not dissimilar to Emery Lovins's since 1975, but I don't think it's a really rather, it's not really a compelling way to talk to the, the body politic, right? So, I mean, if you look at Google or Tom Siebel at C3, for instance, or others, I mean, they really are putting the tools together to be able to do such things, but there really is very little political um, backing around implementing them. So like C3's biggest customer, I think, is Enel in Italy, which has 25 big data pieces. I think he's processing something on the order of 40% more data per second than Google is right now um, to be able to keep up with the big data needs of Enel. But none of the electric utility companies in the U.S. have actually implemented this. And so I'm just trying to figure out what's the pathway by doing this. It seems to me like the only way to do it is mandates. Well, a good comment again. Um, yes, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a technology economic wonk. That's why I need the energy gang to help uh, better understand and how to inform the average uh, member of Congress, the average member of the public or the, the business community. So you're right. Uh, I can only say to you that when you really distill how the economy works, it comes down to two fundamentals. One is the better flow of information so that we can measure, evaluate, and act, and then the energy to actually carry out our intended actions in a smart way that increases productivity. I mean, all biological forms, whether you and me or whether an animal, um, really depends on how we receive input and then how we act on that. And acting on that in an efficient way is more likely to guarantee a sustainable outcome. So in that sense, the evidence points in that direction. That means we've got to punch through the old paradigms and suggest it's not the supply as much as the effective use of our resources, in this case, especially energy. So I'm a wonk. And yes, you're exactly <laughs> right. Uh, There's nothing wrong with being a wonk. I think all of us have a little bit inside of us. Yeah, yeah and I think, Skip, it, it's, uh, and I think it's a little, um, politics is a little different from public policy. So you have, as, as much of an ec- economic wonk as you are, you also have done a lot in public policy. So if you think of it not as a political solution, but as a policy solution, what are some things that you could think of that would be helpful? Well, yeah. So the first step is to step out of a purely supply side orientation, whether we're trying to provide more jobs, more investment capital or energy. It's the effective use of those. And that's where the world of information communication technologies come into play. Rather than we have what we call a device oriented efficiency, whether we improve, say, uh, an industrial process by installing more efficient motors or whether we have more efficient lighting, what have you, that's a device uh, intended approach that has limits. We need a more systematic performance, more optimal performance from an array of devices. That means we got to be connected. We got to measure real time. So the first step on a policy side is to understand that supply side thinking doesn't really inform us about the productivity, the robustness, the resilience of our economy. We need to shift that paradigm. But Skip, I mean, I would again say like, I mean, I'm fairly wonky and I think I only understood 20% of what you just said. I mean, I think, I think when you think about like Microsoft, for instance, they have argued vehemently that they are the leaders in the country at measuring everything on their campus in Redmond. 
now that they've measured everything, and I know Brian Janice pretty well, who's sort of the lead of that, what would you suggest that Microsoft do exactly now that they've got millions of data points coming in every, every second in their Redmond campus? No, you're right. And I only understood 15% of what I said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, seriously, measuring everything isn't the same as telling you what the impact of everything is. And that's where Microsoft needs to go. Yes, Microsoft actually, through the Digital Energy Solutions and Sustainability Campaign, is a client of mine, as are uh, Intel and Verizon and others. So I understand what you're saying. But measuring everything, as I say, doesn't really tell us the outcomes. And that's where we have to move next. I'm talking to people at Dell Research, for example, about how we might measure outcomes as opposed to just measuring the number of devices, the number of links, the number of, of technologies, the amount of investment or you know, the usage per hour. So what well, does what would usage- that look like? I mean, for Microsoft, what would that look like? If they actually measured outcomes, I mean, they've got a, they did an, um, a deal with Altenex to get wind power directly to sort of, you know, zero out their carbons at, uh, at, at Microsoft. They're measuring stuff in the end use. How does the paradigm change for Microsoft in your world? To measure, say, activity or number of links or number of devices is one thing. But how does that use of that device or that link come about in the way of supporting a job or reducing costs of energy services? Fundamentally, it's all about reducing costs, uh, not only of energy services, but of capital and really understanding that dynamic. So Microsoft perhaps may need to focus the data, the many data points they have, the, dare I say, bazillion data points they have per second and focus on what are the outcomes of those datas, and then move towards multi-objective. How do we solve for multiple objectives in our economy rather than just a single thing we call greater profits or reduced costs? How do we minimize water effects? How do we maximize jobs? But that's, a, we- but that's a pretty massive change. I mean, the only thing I'm hearing when I hear you say that is, you know, that we're going back to the days of Karl Marx and we're actually, like, maximizing the number of hours that people are working as opposed to minimizing the total capital required to put this together, right? I mean, I'm not suggesting that there aren't other variables in the economy, but the way in which we've designed our framework now is that GDP and profits and all these other things are actually the way we measure efficiency today. If we're moving to another framework, there has to be a rational way in which you actually get public policy to believe that that framework is better. Yeah, no, the good news is Karl Marx has nothing to do with this, (laughs) Uh, but rather understanding what we want as a society and how to uh, align up the resources in ways to achieve those outcomes. That's the critical issue. Now, it is massive, and I'm saying that rather than take incremental approaches as we tend to do, we need to fundamentally punch through the old paradigms, as I said earlier. That means we need to line up new metrics, a new way of understanding the economy and how resource productivity, water materials, and especially energy, need to be changed. But I'd also add capital. When we talk about capital, my car sits idle 96% of the time. In other words, I drive it maybe 4% of the time. Can I afford an investment that sits idle 96% of the time? No. And it requires more energy to allow it to sit in an idle fashion. Or routers, even routers, as we think about the high-tech world, World, maybe have 5 to 15% of capacity utilized to process and, and store information, make it available to people. Trucks may have 47% empty backhauls. So the way that we break through that is understanding the functional 
problems associated with unutilized capital and how many more pieces of machines we have to overcome because so much capital lies around not being used and even as that imposes a greater constraint through uh, the inefficient use of energy in this particular case. Power plants, we are 50% on average or lie idle. Some are really good like some nuclear plants are 95% but some may be used 5, 10, 15% on average 50%. Can we afford that kind of capital lying around idle. Well, thanks for coming on the show and helping us think differently about these issues. Skip Leitner is an economist with Economic and Human Dimensions Resource, Resource Associates, and he's also a senior fellow with ACEEE. I will link to some of your papers and some of our coverage of that on the podcast page in the show notes. Skip, a great discussion. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, delighted, Stephen, and thanks, Catherine Jigger. Um, Thanks for helping tease us out a bit more. we got more work ahead. <laughs> Thanks, Skip. Thanks. Okay, a little break here to hear more about our podcast sponsor, Renesola. Renesola has been producing monocrystalline wafers since 2005 and has been manufacturing solar cells and modules since 2008. Uh, the company also manufactures and distributes inverters, LED lights, batteries, and mounting accessories, and it puts all these products together into a bundled solution for solar installers. Think about the savings in procurement and shipping costs you could realize by investing in Renesola's bundled offerings for residential systems. And the time that you could save is enormous as well. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses across the U.S. and 40 worldwide subsidiaries. That means the products you need for your next project will get delivered to you the next day. Start your painless procurement at renesola.us. Last week, the three of us were in Dallas, Texas at the Energy Storage Association's annual conference. Uh, yes, numerous people at the show pointed out the lunacy of not doing a podcast while there, but we were all kind of running around, and uh, it didn't work out, unfortunately. But we have the next best thing, all of us here this week together to talk about our impressions from the show. We were all closely connected to it. Jigger gave his humorously horrifying keynote address to kick the event off. Catherine, who acts as a policy advisor to ESA, guided the opening policy panel, which was really excellent. And I had a very informative panel on storage in California that got pushed to the end of the event on Friday afternoon. So we were kind of talking to ourselves at that point, but a good discussion that I hope to do something with once we get the video back from that. Jigger, I want to go to you first to explain your keynote because you had a bunch of really good quotes that um, we were tweeting out and I wrote a, an article on. Here's one. If the storage industry is dependent on backing up solar, it's hopeless. You should just quit your job today. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think that I've been following the storage industry closely since I worked with DOE and Sandia National Laboratories in the 90s. And the value proposition of storage hasn't changed radically since then. Some of the costs have come down, but the value to the grid has basically been the same. What's different today is that there's a whole bunch of people who basically scared the bejesus out of public service commissioners and said, with all this solar and wind that's been added to the grid, we desperately need storage, which is great. That gave the impetus to actually force you know, utilities and others to invest billions of dollars into storage. But to suggest for a moment that storage should pin its fortunes on the back of solar and wind makes no sense to me. The original premise of storage is still the same. In a commodity chain like the electric utility grid, um, storage is valuable. Storage is valuable to offset transmission distribution upgrades. It's valuable to make the grid run better. It's valuable to help generators run more efficiently. In the same way that Skip was talking about um, you know, in the first segment, that 
that storage allows the entire system to be made more efficient. Indeed. And what kind of response did you get? Because um, I think a lot of people have really hitched their wagon to the solar star. So many people are looking to solar as a way to push the storage industry forward. And you really laid out a clear economic case for why these very specific applications beyond just pairing up with solar are much better for many of these companies. Well, I mean, I, I got a lot of really specific feedback, and I, I thought it was it was generally all good. I mean, most people said, "You're right." You know, like we are not our business is not based on the solar industry, but we we do use them as a way in which to get more press and a way in which to get more interest from investors. Even though that's not where our value proposition comes from, as a, and as an investor who's investing in these things, I have to know how I'm going to get paid. I mean, that was the big part of my my discussion was that. I can't just invest in something because it's trendy. I have to invest in something because I think I'm actually going to get paid back. And that's where I think the storage industry has made huge leaps and bounds since the 90s. But if most investors outside of me are still confused by the fact that they have to be funded with storage or with solar and wind, then they're not going to get as much traction. So they have to start being honest about the fact that they're untethering themselves from solar and wind. Well, on the policy front, Jigger, I never talk about storage in terms of renewables, first of all, because certainly with Congress, that's not what you're going to lead with. Uh, We always talk about providing, getting compensated for providing services, especially to the bulk power system. And certainly the first service that was able to be compensated was frequency regulation. And that really spurred the whole market with the ISOs. And that's what I usually lead with is like, look, we're able to provide all of these services. Um, We should be compensated. There should be competition and we should be able to have, you know, get the fair value of that service. Totally. And your opening panel, you didn't hear anybody up there saying, oh, we need storage because we need to back up renewables. Like they're, they're looking at it for in this broader grid modernization context and reliability. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case. Everybody's looking for look. Storage has a wide variety of services it can provide. Some of which may be to help. Um, well, it's really resource neutral, so it can help. Um, certainly, in, um, it can help resources that are I wouldn't even call them intermittent, but are more variable. But it can also help coal and natural gas and everything else work better on the grid. Just as Jigger was saying earlier. Did you get any surprises out of your policy panel? Anything that interested you other than the fact that uh, former FERC chair John Wellinghoff's favorite movie is Die Hard? Yeah, that was great. And that Sky is a big wave surfer, which, right. which yeah. uh, well, we kind of knew that Energy before Gang listeners her. will yeah. know that. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Um, It was great. These folks all come at it uh, with a great deal of experience behind them and having, you know, Judith Judson, for example, who's the new commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of um, Energy Resources. You know, she was the the leader of Beacon's, you know, hard fought um, fight to get frequency regulation. She was key to getting uh, that order through FERC and has the scars to prove it. But that really jump started the industry. And so to have her now go to the state side and be able to connect the dots is great. It's really good to see her in that spot. Jigger, did you get any interesting pitches or see any companies that interested you? Like after your keynote, uh, and anything surprising in terms of project development or companies looking for financing? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I think is so fascinating to me about the storage industry, and one of the things I said in my discussion was um, that that 
it's actually so broadly defined. I mean, a couple of the deals that I saw were folks who had thermal storage units where they were taking excess waste heat, you know, storing the excess waste heat and then using it for air conditioning and heating purposes later to be able to, um, you know, sort of load level the building load. I mean, you're also seeing folks who are like making tables, like literally making dining room tables out of um, different materials that can absorb heat when it's too warm in the dining room and and dispatch it when it's too cold in the dining room. I mean, it's just like, so storage is everything from batteries all the way through, you know, ice storage and thermal storage units all the way through to some of these phase change materials and other things. And so I was pitched a couple times by folks who had, you know, much different definitions of storage, which I thought was fascinating. Indeed. You know, I had many conversations with people and a lot of them were very similar and people say like this industry is still sort of a technology industry searching for the business model and you it's it reminds people of the early days of solar where like you had a lot of super techie solar geeks who were kind of looking for the deals and the and finally they found them um but you see less of the business activity and still a lot more of the the technical stuff well it's changed a lot though Stephen, over the last few years 3 years ago these some of these guys, these startups, they were, you know, a lot of them had gotten ARA grants or loan guarantees. They were hanging by their fingernails for funding. A couple of years ago, you you saw a bunch of them go under. Last year, it was more positive. People started saying, oh, you know, I th- we think we're going to make it. Now it's like M&As, the big guys are playing. I mean, they're still looking for bankability and being able to define exactly what they're going to provide to get the funding. But um, boy, it's come a lot just in a very quick three or four years. Yeah, and just some of those news stories where STEM pulls in, you know, a hundred million dollars in financing, and those are indicators that the business side and the technical side are starting to finally match up. Although well, that was still- one of the other. Yeah, that was one of the other things for me is that there's really only two applications that I was seeing that's really getting funded. One is behind the meter battery storage with, you know, rebates and then demand charge savings. And then the other one is this sort of whether it's behind the meter or in front of the meter, um, you know, bidding of ancillary services into the PJM or MISO or, you know, even a few people doing ERCOT. I think there's six or seven other structures, you know, whether it's storage actually protecting demand savings from solar or whether it's, um, you know, solar providing, you know, some of these um, these other sort of T&D deferments. And I think you see that within the Southern California Edison bid where, you know, they chose three major substations and said, we'd like all four or five of you companies to help us defer these substation investments. But I do think that from an investor's point of view, the value proposition of solar outside of the first two cases I mentioned is quite fuzzy. One of the final things that was interesting to me was my panel discussion with AES Energy Storage, with STEM and with Ice Energy, which provides uh, ice thermal storage. And we were talking about that big 250-megawatt procurement from Southern California Edison last November um, after a long solicitation. And, um, and they, you know, in conversations with them, they were like, oh, we were so surprised that SCE, A, signed the contracts with us that they did, and B, that there was so much storage procured. Um, and so I think the industry is continually surprising itself, but the SCE procurement, which we, we discussed on this podcast, really was a watershed moment um, for many of these companies in proving that they could get beyond 
pilot scale. I mean, a company like AES, of course, has plenty of commercial scale projects, but someone like STEM or someone like Ice Energy, which has been operating in this very small scale pilot world, is uh, now at a completely different level. Well, and they proved that they were cost effective, given what the given what SoCalEd needed. These these guys were cost, you know, were completely cost effective. Well, yeah, but I think that. But my sense, though, Catherine, is they were able to prove that they were completely cost-effective 10 years ago and weren't taken seriously. So there's something that's really changed around the utilities, I think, being forced to actually respect you know, cost-effective bid proposals. And in Southern California Edison's credit, I mean, I think that they've really changed the way in which they view these um, types, of, uh, types of ideas that are pitched to them. Well, and I don't think you're able. The utilities aren't able to build baseload the way they were. They used to be able to. I was selling thermal storage systems in the '80s. Um, we had a thermal energy storage rate, and we were installing ice energy systems in small commercial schools um, in in Dominion. What was Virginia Power? But then, you know, once baseload was able to catch up uh, with nu- with the nuclear plants and other types of baseload, they didn't need any of that anymore. Everything old is new again. Um, speaking of new, let's go on to our third topic, and uh, we'll go from Texas to Mississippi, where Southern Company is struggling to complete its first-of-a-kind 582-megawatt coal power plant featuring carbon capture technology. The Kemper plant was once seen as the gateway to clean coal for America. Today, with nearly $5 billion in cost overruns and years of delay, even supporters of Kemper are questioning the project. Is this just a natural problem for a new technology? Or more evidence that clean coal will never work. Uh, Catherine, what are your thoughts on this? Like the Department of Energy is still standing by it. Yes, yes. The government is still all in. They gave them a $270 million grant to build this. And everybody from Bush to Obama and Secretaries Chu and Moniz, even EPA, has gotten behind this. But if you want to talk about not cost effective, a plant that was going to be $2.8 billion and now is costing $6.2 billion and keeps going, $10,000 a kilowatt hour makes energy storage look pretty good. Um, and I, I would just say that one of the big telling um, forces here, and I talked to Louis Miller from the uh, Sierra Club down there who just knows a lot about kind of the lay of the land. Um, SMEPA, who is the co-op who has uh, 419,000 customers in that territory, and they were really the ones that were that were going to be the big buyers of the energy off of this plant, the 580-some megawatts. They pulled out, and they had two full-time engineers at that plant. They pulled out, and the next thing you know, they have on the street a 250-megawatt RFP for wind. That's half of what they were going to get from this plant. So things are changing down there, and I think the utilities are starting to realize this is uh, this is a boondoggle. Catherine said it so well, you know, and so so politically, you know, fantastically. I, you know, I just think that that when you look at these very complicated projects like Kemper or the other things, we're we really are actually breaking new ground. So I'm okay with the government putting up money, and I'm okay with us trying to do one of these projects. But what you find is, is that after you've hired the independent engineer and after you've done a wrap contract with the EPC um, provider, and then after you go back to the public service commission and say, we need to be protected from any cost overruns, et cetera, there's still a tremendous amount of risk in these technologies. And so to suggest that these technologies are going to be de-risked in time to be an effective way of defeating climate change is crazy. So I'm all for you know, us doing one or two or three of these projects here and there. But I don't think anyone should be banking on 
um, coal capture and sequestration or, you know, any of these other types of new coal, clean coal technologies for, um, you know, getting us to the promised land. Well, and just the data that are already out there on whether you'll actually reduce CO2 from this technology is it's absolutely inconclusive and it shows it seems to show that it would actually increase Wait, co2 really? what's the new data i haven't seen it well it's just um you know we're using they're using the co2 to do enhanced oil recovery there's a lot of leakage potential there's also you take the oil and what are you going to do with the oil you're going to burn it yeah. i mean what's so the whole process is seems fraught yeah, uh, but one I, but, thing one thing I asked Louie about was I said, well, how about jobs? You know, here is a huge plant being built, and you see all these pictures of people, um, you know, trailer parks full of people working. And he said Kemper County is one of the five poorest counties in the country, and there are very very few jobs in that plant from Kemper County. The unemployment rate for that county has gone up between two and three percent. So the construction jobs are not even from in state; most of them are from out of state. I am so interested in the politics around this. And I wish I could say that they were surprising because they're not, because we all understand how these politics work. But, uh, you know, Mississippi Governor Haley Barber worked as a lobbyist to Southern Company, and uh, I believe he's decried the stimulus package, but of course um, urged a law that would allow power companies to raise taxes before a project like Kemper was completed. And uh, his old firm helped secure the federal government loan guarantees for the project. It was $270 million. And you look at all these reports that have come out recently from like Americans for Limited Government or Americans for Tax Reform. There, you know, there are a bunch of smaller conservative groups um, decrying federal subsidies for solar power. And you still hear rumblings of Solyndra. Uh, but what you see is, <laughs> you know, billions of dollars, billions of dollars being spent for a project that uh, is years over budget, not producing the jobs that were promised and uh, is going to raise power prices for people. Yeah, so the ratepayers and the stockholders certainly also are going to be footing the bill for this. So who gets blamed for this is the Public Service Commission. So interestingly, the Public Service Commission, all commissioners, there are three of them, one for the North, Central, and Southern Districts, are elected on off years. So their election is this November. And the Northern Commissioner is evidently has been really good. He's the one that pushed through the net... Uh, metering docket. And then the other two are up for grabs. And so if they can get, you know, one other commissioner who from Central or Southern who supports clean energy, then Mississippi will really, really change. So, I mean, the one thing that I would say is that I, I, I really do think that this is an Obama thing. And I think that as soon as Obama's out of office, you're going to see the Republicans wholeheartedly start supporting renewables. Um, I mean, I just think we're creating so many jobs in red districts that I just think they don't want to give Obama the satisfaction of showing that they've changed their tune. Oh, I hope you're I hope you're right. That's both a uh, very cynical and optimistic view of the post Obama presidency. So we'll see what happens. And um, that's the show, folks. Let's tell you something you do not know. Uh, Catherine, you're up first this week. Thanks. So guess what? The final EPA Clean Power Plan Rule 111D is at the Office of Management and Budget in the White House. Wait, you're focusing on 111D? Yes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I figured I should after I thought that was outside bashing your a coal plant. Yeah, so um, 
they have OMB now has 90 days to either publish it or send it back. They're still hopeful that it will be published midsummer July timeframe. So, and then at that point, uh, the states have to start putting together their plans. So, pretty exciting. Jigger, how about you? So, I there was a story out of the UK where a, a number of um, eminent UK scientists were joined by John Brown, the former CEO of BP, um, to say that we need a global Apollo program. Um, to be able to really move us to getting renewables cheaper than um, than coal, uh, I, I thought that it was amazing. Just because one, renewables are already cheaper than new coal, so this notion that we need to get cheaper is crazy. Yes, we are thank get you. And they said in a decade, they said in a decade, renewables right. cheaper than coal, which was insane. And for anyone who knows the UK, the UK is not even close to being as efficient as Germany is. So you would think that these guys would just do a 10-year Apollo program for the UK and try to get their own backyard in order before they start imposing their will on the rest of us. They should do an Apollo program for their energy efficiency program, which is completely broken. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, well, no, I thought that was really just, interesting, too. I'm glad that you had the same take because going back to our Hawaii discussion on like public policy setting an agenda that's far behind the market reality, this is a perfect example of that. Yeah. It's just anyway, it's crazy just because, I mean, I mean, Lord John Brown actually did a lot of the foundational work when he was at BP in 1999, 2000, 2001 to help the solar industry get to where they are they are today, right? I mean, he should be taking credit for some of that stuff, but instead he's sort of signing his name onto something that says we're not quite there. Um, I have two this week. The first, I can't believe I didn't mention at the beginning of the show, is that this week we are two years old. Yay. Woo! I love doing this with you guys. We say <laughs> it at the end of every year, but like, it's just, it really is the highlight of my week. And yeah, we've been doing this for exactly two years. Uh, we've got a lot of wonky folks who are into the show and very passionate about what we do, and we're just so thankful for them. Yeah, uh, it's awesome. We love them all. And I know many of them are in D.C., and I know for a fact that many of them run because I've been told uh, by them that we, we keep them company on their runs and their workouts in the gym. Um, so this brings me to my second one. I mentioned the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, or CLI, last year which is a great organization here in the city that's helping educate young professionals about all facets of the clean energy industry and to create better connections here in D.C. It was uh, actually founded by Adam James, who is our global demand analyst and who I used to work with at the Center for American Progress. And uh, he wanted to let me know that GTM, Soul Systems, and CLI are going to be hosting a fundraiser, 5K, on Sunday, July 12th in D.C. And it's 10 bucks to enter, 15 bucks after June 8th. Um, and then we will be tripling your donation along with Soul Systems. So come show us how fast you are uh, and how generous you are by supporting an organization that I really like. Um, and then they're, they're trying to help build the next generation of clean energy leaders, many of whom I know who listen to this podcast. Um, I myself, I'm a recovering runner. As many of you know, I'm a power lifter. So cardio is really anything over one repetition. But I'll be cheering <laughs> you on. <laughs> So you can, to find out more, go to uh, cleanenergyleaders.org and you can check out the events section. Oh, and talking about fundraisers, you know, the summer solstice party in D.C. is coming up for the Solar Foundation. So yes, indeed. Uh, June 24th, I think. Well, we're going to be at uh, Grid Edge Live during our podcast. Oh, oh yeah. Right. yeah. Oh, well. Speaking of which, if you are going to be at Grid Edge Live in San Diego, 
the three of us will be doing a show and we will have a special guest and it's going to be a lot of fun as our live shows always are and that is it for this week to contact us with your comments questions story ideas email podcasts at greentechmedia.com help boost our ratings in itunes leave us a review rate us pass us along to your friends and colleagues um that really helps us out to find new listeners and uh, you can also catch all our back episodes at greentechmedia.com or of course on itunes on soundcloud or on stitcher radio a huge thanks to renesola for supporting the show and a thanks to all of our listeners for supporting us over the last couple of years uh, you really are amazing jigger and Catherine, you're amazing as well for putting the time into this uh, you're amazing too <laughs> <laughs> have a great weekend Catherine. yeah you too you as well jigger thanks you too with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next week. Music.